Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Uh, not co-located tonight, but uh, we, we found a way to make it happen. The miracle of technology gave us a way. Indeed, uh, not co-located, and I will have to say that I would much rather be co-located than where I am right now. But, uh, you know, traveling for work is apparently a thing that some people do that I have been doing a lot recently. But uh, the wonders of telework and uh, Zencaster and uh, portable electronics that allow us to record things in decently high quality, uh, definitely the gift that keeps on giving. And I am... Uh, grateful to be here virtually if any if nothing else yeah you you've definitely been uh i was gonna say pounding the pavement i don't think that's necessarily appropriate for like the the kind of travel that you've been doing which has been primarily uh by air air travel yeah exactly (laughs) gliding the airways right yeah but you've definitely yeah you've been uh you've really been putting in the hours lately and of course uh, i know that you're (laughs) <laughs> you're you're going to be there for the next few days um and then you've got a one day break and then you're going to be back there again so oh yeah no it's it's super fun it's just a, a busy time of year um for me i've got a couple clients that i'm uh, hosting and we're doing lots of fun things and uh you know i'm not i knew what i signed up for i guess um and i while i don't love being away from home for so long um it uh, definitely has benefits in the form of uh, good airline miles that I don't have to pay for. And um, as I told Lyndon right before we started recording, some free with big quotation marks uh, hotel whiskey that the company is paying for because it's just charged to the room and uh, it's all good. So I get some free whiskey. I still get to record a podcast to get some nice airline miles. Um but I do miss my my loved ones. Like, uh, you know, I guess I miss you a little bit, Lyndon. But mostly <laughs> I miss your wife and uh, your son, my nephew, the wonderful Sawyer boy. Uh, ah, he's the best. I'll accept. I do miss I'll him. accept the, the tiny smidge that you that you have devoted to uh, to those feelings for me. Well, I, you should. I'm glad that we're finally at a place in our relationship where there is the tiny smidge. It's, it's heartwarming, Lyndon. The tiniest of smidges. That tiny smidge is a <laughs> is a warm ember of familial love that I I, I will cherish forever. Good, I'm glad. Uh, I don't give it out freely, so just you know, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing. Noted. Oh man. So all that being said, so I I actually I'm uh, I'm recording from the office tonight. Um, I don't know what the weather's like in Memphis, Matt, but it is uh, oppressively hot in Dallas right now. It it is also oppressively hot in memphis it is uh record-breaking heat waves across the south as i understand it and uh, that includes up here it's insane uh it is no fun um and of course i, I work in logistics so a lot of warehouse work uh, luckily they are all temperature controlled warehouses um that didn't used to be the case as i understand it from you know way back when when that wasn't a uh, priority but no they're at least temperature controlled now so uh it's not oppressively hot inside but man as soon as you step outside it's like 
pavement is melting your shoes or something. It's it's nuts. Yeah, uh, it got up to 103 in Dallas today, which is obviously like, Ooh. yeah, that's brutal. So um, all that is to say I chose to not be outside for this one because ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, absolutely. No, we're not doing that. Uh, ain't nobody want to just sweat your balls off while you're recording a podcast about Zelda. Nope, I'm not about it. Not at all. I, I want to have a fun time recording this podcast, especially this week, because uh, I feel like we've got a really fun little chunk of game to talk about. Uh, absolutely. I think this is a chunk of game that we've really been looking forward to. Uh, we finally got here and we finally got to play it. And uh, spoiler alert, it absolutely lived up to my expectations. And man, I'm so happy to talk about it. Def- Very excited. Definitely closed out a big chapter of uh, gameplay in Breath of the Wild with the completion of, of this chunk, you know? Absolutely. I, you know, uh, as they say in Avengers Endgame, uh, we're we're entering the end game now. We we're in the end game now, Tony. We are in the end game, uh, literally. And I think that there is there is a lot of good yet to come. But man, this was so strong. I think you know the fact that we're playing with DLCs intact is a big bonus for us. Um, but you know, I remember distinctly before the DLCs were out, the first time we played through this game, it felt like after you were done with Vondaboris, which was the last divine beast on that playthrough for me as well. It was like, all right, I guess we're just going to head on to Hyrule castle and get this ish done. Um, obviously now we have a lot more game to play still a few more episodes. I think we have four more episodes still, um, including our final total recap. Um, so yeah, some stuff to tie up, but man, we're definitely getting into the let's tie up the shrines, let's do the DLCs, let's, you know, hit the loose ends that we left. Um, but yeah, the main chunk of game, I think you could really say we have finished up at this point. And I'm very excited to talk about this epic penultimate part of the game i guess penultimate part of the main game anyway yeah yeah definitely um i think that's the appropriate word (laughs) for what this is um before we get into that however uh we do have a few little housekeeping items that i want to get out of the way before we launch into the sacred realms rundown um you know uh of course we have our housekeeping section but before we get into that we do have one or two loose ends a little a little pod business that we want to address uh before we move on uh the first of those things that we want to to mention is the fact that you know um with the closing of one game comes the uh, opening of another game uh which is to say that the time to post a poll to the patreon where we let our um patrons vote on what game we play next is uh, soon to come i think that we're going to aim to have that poll up on the patreon before the end of the week uh, and it is of course going to be a selection of top-down titles uh, because we do alternate back and forth obviously uh we are not going to have all top-down titles uh, on present on this poll um for a few a few, a few different reasons um obviously some of those are sequels to games that we have not yet played so they won't be available that's going to be your phantom hourglass spirit tracks because we haven't played wind waker yet um also uh we are not going to have minish cap on the on the poll i don't believe because we kind of want to play the other two capcom uh games before we get to minish cap the oracles um but you know we'll we'll have a few different ones on there and it should be a pretty good pretty challenging selection um to choose between so um 
that should be really exciting. I, uh, obviously there's a little apprehension baked in there. Um, just knowing that at some point we're going to have to hit those NES games. And I think you and I are just a little, a little anxious about that, but. Oh man. Yeah. It's, it, it's rough. Um, I think we're, <laughs> we know we're going to do it. When we very first started talking about this podcast, we knew we were going to have to do it then. We committed to do it, and we're just gonna. But that doesn't mean we have to be excited about it. <laughs> that was That is not contractually stipulated. You're right. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so we're hoping to have that up by the end of the week. And then we we usually run those for like two to three weeks. Um, it will definitely close uh, before the final episode of Breath of the Wild. Uh, so everybody will know what the next game that we're going to be playing is um, well in advance of the end of this season. So definitely lots to be excited about there. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention was in regards to the trading card situation. Um, everything through February is now in the mail. You should have have um you should have everything uh, up until that point now unless you are uh international i think both of our international people are in the uk um and of course i you know i kind of i, I send those out in greater batches so uh look forward to getting your december through june cards all in one thing together if that applies to you obviously the designs for uh, March and April have already been revealed. Um, the designs for May and June are going to be revealed here in the next week or so, um, and those will all get printed up together. So moving right along on the trading card front. And I think that that's all that I've got in addition to the regular housekeeping, unless you had something that you wanted to throw in here, Matt. Uh, I don't think I do. I think we've got a lot of content to cover, so let's knock out housekeeping quickly and get into the meat of the episode. Let's do it. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much more. One of the benefits that comes along with being a Master Sword patron or above is that you get your name read every week on this show. Those legendary individuals are... Allie, Lennon, Leviticus, Melanie, Kolku, Rowan, Joshua, Nick, Hyrule Podcasters, Keep It Going Pod, Dante, Jep, Mary, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, aka Max Nichols, Garrett, and Drew. We appreciate all of your support so much, and we truly could not make this show without you. A um, special shout out to one of the individuals on that list is uh, one Joshua Lindquist, um, who is, uh, of course, um, on the team over at Zelda Universe and uh, posted something to Twitter earlier today uh, commemorating the 20th anniversary of his involvement in the Zelda Online fan community space. So 20 years is obviously a very long time. Um, he is he is one of those incredibly tenured people who keep all the plates spinning over at Zelda Universe. So uh, thank you for everything you, you do, uh, Josh, and we're thrilled to have you um, as a part of our community as well. Cheers, cheers. Yep, yep. 
But without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that, of course, every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering Breath of the Wild Chapter 12, which documents our expedition into our final divine beast, Va Naboris, and also ties up our exploratory adventures in the Gerudo Desert. Part one of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap as read by Matt, and this is where I'm going to turn it over to him. I should probably have this pulled up and ready to go, (laughs) and I did not. (laughs) I mean, uh, 50% of the plot recap is writing it, and the other 50%, I think, is just, you know, having it able to be read. So there you go. (laughs) For sure. As we leave the Yiga clan hideout with the Thunderhelm in our possession, we eagerly warp back to the Gerudo Town Shrine so we can begin the journey to free the final divine beast from the grip of the Calamity. As we don our disguise and head back into the town to deliver the helm to Riju, we feel the weight of the quest that we have undertaken sink in. We are almost at the end now. Once this divine beast is freed, only Ganon stands in the way of freeing Zelda. And with the firepower of these machines, he is certainly no match for us, we hope. Putting doubts aside, we find Riju in her throne room and return the Thunderhelm to its rightful possessor. As Riju takes us to the balcony of her private chambers and dons the helm, even though it is really way too big for her, she wears it with the grace of a born leader. For a second, there, as we look, sorry, for a second there, I thought you were going to say that we we took the thunder helm back to Riju in her throne world, and I was like, I'm like too much destiny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Although, hmm, fun crossover, not really. Uh, but man, throne worlds are fun. I'm sorry. To, I'm Hold sorry on, to have interrupted you. Yeah. I messed it all up. (laughs) Okay, I found my spot again. And as we look upon her, a memory of Urbosa finally returns to us. In this memory, Urbosa is cradling a deeply sleeping Zelda as they sit upon one of the balconies of Vodnaburus, overlooking the vast and inscrutable Gerudo Desert by night. As we approach, Urbosa commends us for coming so quickly and tells us that she and Zelda have been out and about on archaeological dig sites all day. Seemingly, Zelda came here to escape us and the court for a while, but Urbosa, being a champion and sworn protector of the princess, alerted us as soon as she could. The nights in the desert are cold, and Urbosa decides to wake the sleeping princess by summoning lightning from the sky with her signature powers. As the startled Zelda awakens, she sees us and immediately scolds us for coming here, even though she expressly forbade it. As the memory fades and reality returns, we see before us not Urbosa, the mightiest warrior of her time, but the descendant who so resembles her in miniature. Riju tells us to meet her at the eastern outpost when we are ready, and that using the power of the helm and some trusty sand seals, we will attempt to tame Naburis. We head there at once to begin the task and find Naburus directly east, kicking up one hell of a sandstorm and blasting deadly purple lightning all over the place. But Riju summons the strength of the ancestral Gerudo chiefs, and the Thunderhelm casts a wide protective shield over her and the surrounding area so that we can safely enter the Maelstrom.
we ride the sand seals through the storm, the Thunderhelm protects us from the deadly lightning, and the use of some handy bomb arrows makes short work of the four feet that Nabura strides the sands upon. Once Naburus is down, we quickly hop aboard to start the process of cleansing the beast, just as we have done three times before. As soon as we step inside, just like in the other divine beasts, the spirit of its champion speaks to us, and Arbosa commends us for finally coming to rescue the divine beast from Calamity Ganon's grasp. And while admonishing us that we certainly know how to keep a lady waiting, she knows that we are up for the task. Nabura certainly is a challenging task, and the classic five power points we need to activate are difficult to reach in this mechanical marvel. The center section can rotate at our command, but so much of the beast's inner workings are related to the flow of electricity, and we have to be incredibly intentional about every move we make. The upper reaches of the beast, in what would be a normal camel's humps, there are even more intricate workings that require thoughtful and deliberate consideration. The neck and tail of the beast can move as well, and everywhere we turn we find malice growths and lots of loot. Finally, we activate all the consoles and head to the main power unit to summon the blight that has corrupted this divine beast. Thunderblight Ganon, which defeated one of the fiercest warriors of the age over a hundred years ago, comes to do battle against us to fight for control of the last divine beast. This shade of calamity wields a sword and shield and is as quick as the element it portrays. With swift and equally fierce attacks, it seeks to fly past our defenses and deal massive damage. However, with some amazing parries and the help of the gifts of the champions, we thwart this ghoul again and again. In its final act of defiance, it begins to summon the metal pillars and electricity and electrify the arena at will. But we use these metal pillars against it, and after a few more bouts of furious combat, bring the monster down and free the divine beast. As we have come to expect, Urbosa's spirit appears before us and commends us for a well-fought battle. As a reward for freeing her spirit as well as her divine beast, she grants us the powerful ability known as Urbosa's Fury, which can summon lightning from the sky when combined with a fully charged power attack. As she sends us back to Gerudo Town, she charges us to take good care of the princess and of Hyrule. And most importantly, to let Zelda know that she is so very proud of the princess. We land back in Gerudo Town and head to see Riju, who not only congratulates us, but also gives us the amazing gifts of Urbosa's sword and shield, the Sword of the Seven and Daybreaker. Taking these legendary weapons in hand, we head off to complete our quest. We have some more shrines to conquer and gain our full power, the Trials of the Sword to complete and unlock the amazing capabilities of the Master Sword, and some other loose ends to tie up before we head off to defeat Ganon and save Zelda once and for all. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. Let's go ahead and get into part two, which is our takes where we talk about this section of the game, how it made us feel. Um, 
Real quick, Matt, I do just want to say that like this is kind of a really weird order for us in terms of the way that we normally do this show um, where obviously I want to talk about how we, you know, felt about the divine beast specifically, but we Mm -hmm. also do need to save that for, um, you know, uh, for the dungeon map shrine diving. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, let's try and be as general about Vonaboris as we possibly can be, but, um, but yeah, I mean, what kind of, give me a, give me a tone check, uh, on this whole section of the game for you. Where were you at with it? Yeah, so I I did a lot of extra stuff in this section as well, but just kind of keeping it to what I tried to outline in the plot recap, which is, you know, from the Yika Clan hideout back to Gerudo Town. I guess you can fit in there some moderate desert exploration if you kind of assume that between Yiga hideout and Gerudo Town, you can see some stuff. Um, And then, you know, again, as general as we can about Vondaburis, this section again is really fun. I think we talked about it a lot in the opening section, and we're going to talk even more about it when we get to shrine diving. Uh, But yeah, excellent section of game. Um, In this section, I did actually spend some time sand sealing around um seriously the desert <laughs> seriously i did seriously do it <laughs> uh fata Mulduga, which was so fun very excited to talk about that in bloopy trails mm-hmm. um and uh yeah like i i played this a lot on planes as i've been out and about and um it makes those those plane rides go by real fast i mean they're only an hour and a half between dallas and memphis but um makes that hour and a half feel real fast whenever you're just really digging your teeth into some quality game yeah i mean and that's what we have here it's just some real quality an game. hour an hour and a half is nothing for breath of the wild like you can oh for you sure can blow that without blinking like, yeah, you can you can blow that and maybe get three shrines if you're not like focusing. Yeah, right. Like you can just be distracted by so many things and do all the all of them. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it was just a lot of fun. I I was really um, it, it was escapism at its finest for me, I think. Um, and maybe that's uh, that's definitely affected by, um, you know, the the time in in the day or the time in my life, I guess, in which I've been playing it. but. Um, yeah, it's it's been really really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I think that this um for for many reasons, this whole section of the game, um the whole Gerudo Desert region really stands out as being one of the one of the most fun parts overall uh to to kind of make your way through. And uh obviously and and this is just the back half of it, right? Um but I still think Oh, for sure. Again, like I know we said last week that we're happy that we made that split. And then after having played the back half this week, I was like, yeah, that really was, that was the thing to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much fun to get into here. I think the Gerudo region, just generally speaking, feels like it has, um, such an incredible sense of place, you know, um, the fact that you've got the Gerudo and the Yiga both in there and you've got a really cool narrative around those two opposing forces, um, some really cool characters in the form of Riju, her guards, and then, of course, Urbosa, when we finally um, we start to dig into that character via memories and then also uh, when we actually meet the specter of Urbosa after defeating the Divine Beast. Um, some really great characterizations um, that are kind of going around there. Um, and yeah, and and then a lot of really challenging shrines and gameplay as well. So, yeah, I think just generally came away from this whole section 
uh, feeling very, very positive about it. Um, before we, so what I want to do, Matt, is I want to go ahead and read off our homework and get that done. And then I want to get into a conversation about the plot of everything that kind of happens here. I want to talk about some of these characters and a bunch of these big story beats that happen. Cause, um, a lot of it is just really, really, really neat, but I'm going to pass it over to you to read off your worksheet. Yeah, sure. So um, our starting and ending point for this week was uh, leaving the Yika clan hideout to claiming Daybreaker and the Sword of the Seven. Uh, so for me, that was south to Gerudo Town, western to the desert for some shrines. Um, I actually did go, like I said, back to the Korok Forest for uh, that first round of Trial of the Sword. Uh, I did some Lionel and Dragon Part hunting um, for funsies. And because uh, I'm trying to upgrade my fierce deity armor all the way, so I need Lionel guts and I need uh, you know uh, dragon parts for that. Uh, what else did I do? Then I went uh, after I completed my first round of Trial of the Sword. I went back to uh, Gerudo Town and uh, went to Vondaburis from there. Awesome. Uh, da, 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 da. My shrine count is 97. So I didn't do too many shrines this week. I just did like, I think three, maybe two, um, no towers to activate. And then, uh, we'll get into our favorite shrines later. So I think that brings me to our general stopping point. Okay. Excellent. Uh, so obviously my starting and ending point, I think was, was the same as yours. I started at the Yiga hideout and ended in Gerudo town. Um, basically, I mean, I, I guess the ending point was kind of up in the air, depending on what order you did things in after you cleared, uh, Vonaboris, but, um, I was doing a lot of stuff in Gerudo town. So yeah, that, that was my ending point. Um, let's see. My route taken was, um, I warped from the Yiga hideout back to Gerudo town. Um, and then from there did the whole sand seal, you know, the, the the kind of structured path that gets you to Vonaboris. Um so that was awesome. And then after that and Vonaboris was cleared, I did what I referred to here as a desert mosey, where I just kinda <laughs> it just kinda <laughs> putzed around the desert and and cleared as many shrines as I as I came across. So the shrine the the desert mosey. There you go. That's uh that's the, the, hey, the term it. I'm coining for that. My shrine count at the end of this was 93, so I'm still just a little bit behind you, but uh, definitely not too far in your rear view mirror. And uh, obviously we activated no towers because there were no towers left to activate. So we have activated them all. So I think that that is going to about do it for us in terms of homework. So let's go ahead and get into a discussion about um, the, I guess, the plot and the story content. Uh, of, of mm-hmm. this section of the game because there's really a lot to dig into here um like i said before a lot of really interesting characters and i don't want to lead the conversation on z z targeting too much but um i do want to ask you what did you think now that we've actually gotten a chance to speak to urbosa uh what do you think of her versus the other champions that we've gotten to know so far oh Urbosa's the best champion like there's really no question about that um I think who she is as a person, the relationship that she has with both Zelda and with Link to a lesser uh, lesser degree are uh, telling and incredible. I think that, um, you know, we find out from King Bosphoramus's um, journal in the uh, 
Hylia in the Hy- in the Hyrule Castle uh, library that Zelda's mother died when she was very young. And it seems uh, pretty obvious to me anyway that Urbosa has kind of taken on a semi-maternal, semi-mentorship uh, uh, role with Zelda. Um, but at the same time that she is, is that, she is also one of the most fierce warriors in the entire world at this time. And she is the chief of a fiercely proud and warrior race people. And she is just like the absolute embodiment of badass bitch. And like, I'm here for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and and you're right in terms of that relationship, like the maternal relationship uh, that Urbosa has with Zelda. I thought that that was a really cool beat, especially because um, in a lot of the other flashbacks, we don't see a whole lot of Zelda's interpersonal relationships with other people. Um, We get a lot, Mm -hmm. we get a lot with her and her father, um, which is. And her and Link. and, And her and Link. But I would say that both of those have kind of like a bit of an adversarial tinge to them. Right. Oh, absolutely. Especially, especially in this memory, there's a, it's just straight up adversarial Yeah, with Link anyway. Yeah. And, and then the memories that we do end up getting between her and her father, which we haven't talked about yet, but we will, uh, there, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, those are obviously like laced with tension as well. Um, oh, yeah. so the nice thing about this is that we see, uh, what is really just a, just a straight up positive, um, relationship in Zelda's life. And I think that that's really nice and it really helps color Zelda as a character. And it also, um, immediately endears us to Urbosa, um, which I think is a really cool trick that this game is able to pull off, um, to get you to really like Urbosa as a character without having, um, very much, uh, screen time in which to accomplish that. So that's great. Yeah. Um, I will say one, one quick note about Urbosa the entire so from the first time that I played Breath of the Wild until yesterday, I was sure, like I was one hundred percent positive that the voice actress who performed um, the part of Urbosa was the same voice actress that voiced Hera Syndulla in Star Wars Rebels. They sound very, very similar. Like, yes, I really thought they were the same actress, and I actually finally did the research on that yesterday, and they are not. But yeah, their voices are incredibly similar. So. I don't know. Yeah. Two incredible voice actresses. So uh, both both sides of that coin are a compliment. Yep. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. So we've talked about Urbosa. I want to get a, a tone check from you on Riju as so, well because we – But So before we move on to Riju, I do want to say in the, th- in the realm of voice acting, I think that Urbosa's voice actress really brings into sharp comparison and contrast – the lack of skill of Zelda's voice actress, I think. Um, I, while I don't, I don't have any problems, and I actually very much enjoy the way that Zelda is written, at least in the English version. Um, I am not a huge fan of the voice acting for Zelda, especially outside of the memories, um, where it's very breathy and um, almost atonal. Um, I, I think that the voice acting for uh, for Zelda is really not great in English. I think um, I think I, I come down more positively on Zelda's voice um, performance than you do. I don't think that it's like perfect or that it's the best vocal performance in video games ever. Um, I, I think that Breath of the Wild in general, the voice acting kind of suffers from like big Renfair energy, you know, where it's like. 
Yeah, it, it feels very staged and grandiose and like odd. Yeah, it's not natural. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that that is that's a very valid criticism, and um, you know, I mean, I don't think that that's a controversial opinion at all. I, I think a lot of people feel the same way, but I do think that I agree with you in um in as far as we can call Urbosa's performance like an outlier and maybe the exception that proves the rule. Right. I would. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely a really great job there. Uh, so let's talk about Riju as well, because the, the way that this really breaks down for each area that we go and we fight a divine beast is that we end up having a currently living character that is usually a descendant um, of the champion that has passed. That's not always the case, but a lot of times it is. Um, but we have a currently living character and then we have also got the ghost of the champion. And, um, those tend to be our two major character like touch points, um, in each Mm -hmm. of these sections of the game. And so at this point, you know, we've already met, we've met Tiba and we've met Sidon and we've met, um, um, uh, Yunobo. Right. Yes. Um, and so now we get Riju, and I kind of am curious where you fall on Riju. Oh, yeah. I, I love Riju. I think, as we talked about last week, Riju has a really great character tension between her being so young and feeling inadequate, but being thrust into this position of leadership. And in these scenes, you really see Riju take on the the needed air of command and the needed... Uh, confidence in order to harness the power of the Thunderhelm to guide Link using that power up to uh, a terrifying fight for most people. What would what would drive most people immediately into an underground shelter somewhere close by? Um, Riju just straight up goes for it. And I think you see Riju kind of come into her own, not only in that instance, but also when you come back to her after uh, Divine Beast Vanaboris is tamed. And she even says, like, I, f- I finally feel that confidence that I needed. I finally feel like I have succeeded in some way as a chief and I feel that, you know, I'm set up for success here. Yeah. So I, you see some really cool character development here uh, with Reggie. Yeah. That's that. I I agree. And, you know, I think last week we really, um, you know, obviously we, we got to meet Reju last week, uh, but it was mostly just Reju hanging out in the throne room. Right. And this week we get, uh, we get Reju who is, um, a leader of action of the Gerudo people, right? Um, this whole, the whole mm-hmm. sequence um, where you kind of ride the sand seals and you kind of, you attack the feet of Vonaboris together is just really stinking cool. Um, I think there's a lot of fun characterization of Riju in this section where they kind of play it for laughs that the Thunderhelm is like too big for her, you know, but it yeah, it's huge. Although she could just put her hair up and it would probably fit because that <laughs> chick has so much hair, yeah, right? Uh, but like, I think it's done for laughs, but not in a way that's like hokey or, you know, like it was all charming to me. Um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't ham fisted. Like a lot of these can be ham fisted sometimes, right? Yeah. Like it's, there's no doubt about that. I think the way that the Gerudo in general have been handled, like you and I talked about last week has been pretty ham fisted. And I think some of the, uh, humor that was handled even with like Yonobu being like such a coward was a little ham fisted but no I feel like they handled uh Riju pretty well yeah I I totally agree um 
So moving moving along from those two main characters, let's talk about some of the big set pieces that happen here. You had a really cool comparison that you made. You texted it to me. Um, some, yes. Yeah, something that the attack on Vonnaboris reminded you of. So go ahead and drop that here for everybody. Yeah. So uh, as I was riding my or riding the shield behind my sand seal uh, up to Vonnaboris, I was distinctly reminded of the charge of the Rohirrim against the Mumakil of the Easterlings. And as I'm like riding underneath this massive beast, and like when you think, if you think about it, the comparison in size is actually almost roughly the same. Um, it's, I was just like, man, I am shooting the underbelly of the monster with arrows. Huh, I wonder where I've seen that before. Like, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was really fun. I was, I almost wanted to, uh, I was unfortunately not in a position to do this, but wanted to go and play the, uh, that portion of the soundtrack of the return of the King when, uh, Theoden is yelling death and then they charge the orcs outside of Minas Tirith. Like, man, I was in that vibe. Like, let's God, that that is just the best scene of any of those three movies. I mean, like absolutely, absolutely bar none. Yes. God, (laughs) uh, man, now I want to watch those again. I always want to watch them. Now I want to watch them even more. I was about to say, I, I always want to watch those again. <laughs> They're just, it's, it's never a bad use of your time, right? No, no, no. So I think that the comparison is very apt. I think that I can totally see where you kind of got those, those big vibes from this. Um, and, and yeah, it's a really cool set piece and a really cool moment. Um, I, I really like, uh, I think sand seals are just kind of a, a blast in general to, you know, to, to drive around and to control and everything. And, um, the, and it's really fun using them to, to do something like this. Um, I actually think that I can't, I I came away from this feeling like this was probably the most fun attack on any of the four divine beasts. I actually came away with the exact same thought. Yeah. Um, I, I, cause yeah, I think before this, I probably would have said vomito, you know, yeah, Vaughn Meadow is also a lot of fun. I mean, there's something about aerial combat that's fun. Right. Just in general. But yeah. But no, I think this one definitely um, it's it's great because you actually are traversing areas of the map that you can just kind of always go to in order to get there, um, which is not the mm-hmm. case for all the other divine beasts like in Vaughn Meadow. Obviously, it's, um, you know, you're up in, in the sky and you can, you know, you, you can see all of the landscape below you. Uh, but you can't like ever traverse up there again. Um, and then in the uh, in the Varuta one, you're in that reservoir, and you know, like what? I guess you could swim out to the middle of that if you wanted to at some point in the future. But like, what's the point? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good luck. Good luck with that. Yeah, but um, but the whole thing is, this is like an area of the map that we will be visiting again later, you know? And so I just thought it was really cool, um, traversing it in, in that way. Um, did you, uh, did you, uh, break out one of your trusty three times bows for this task? Oh dude, I broke out my five times Korok bow. Nice. Yeah. I actually, it was on its last leg, so I was just using it up. Um, which was a good call, but then for the last one, I did use a trusty three times bow that I also had. Yeah, that's a that's um, a real quick way to knock have, it out. I have a lot. Yeah, I have a lot of three times bows right now, and actually, I have three five times bows on me right now, which is insane. But um, yeah, I've still got my fight. Uh, it's a five times savage Lionel bow, and I I keep that in case of emergencies. <laughs> it's uh, it's my when I really need to get done bow. <laughs> yes that is i'm saving that one for some uh champions ballad stuff 
Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, so before we get into shrine diving slash the dungeon map and, and we actually talk about Vonaboris, I do want to mm-hmm. take one uh, one second to mention another really cool plot thing that happens in this chunk of game. Um, and it is uh, it offers a bit of connective tissue to the history of the Gerudo as we understand it from especially Ocarina of Time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a- yeah, yeah. After we've beaten Vonaboris and uh, Urbosa is piloting the Divine Beast up to its plateau where it chills out at, we get some really cool dialogue from her about how Naboris is named for uh, Naburu, you know, the Sage of Spirit who's a legendary Gerudo warrior. And Urbosa talks about how she can't wait to kick Ganon's ass because to her it's it's personal. Um in, because Ganon also was a descendant of a Gerudo at one point in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, uh, because Ganon like took the form of a Gerudo at one point, and I guess the reputation that comes along with that has been like a stain on on all Gerudo ever since then. Mm-hmm. So I I thought that that was just a really cool bit of dialogue because obviously we know that that's the case from Ocarina of Time, but just to hear it all talked about so specifically in the same breath as like mentioning Naboru, a character from Ocarina of Time, um, mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. Like really, really enjoyed that whole thing. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it so much that I, I thought about putting it in the plot recap, but just re- remembering that I always try to write the plot recap from Link's perspective and knowing that Link would not have been necessarily privy to that information, uh, I chose to exclude it for that reason. Um, but yes, it was it was a really fun uh, topic and a really fun little uh, Easter egg, I guess is the closest word. Um, but it it was really fun. I enjoyed that as well. It makes me wonder. So I'm glad you called it yeah, out. Yeah, no, definitely. It makes me wonder. You know, talking actually some Breath of the Wild sequel speculation here now. Um, if uh, if the common wisdom, as you know, if you can call it that, when it's all internet speculation, um, mm-hmm. it ends up being true that we get some kind of. For, like physical form of Ganondorf in the Breath of the Wild sequel. I wonder if they're going to yeah. stick to that that kind of origin of like the the Gerudo ness of that character. That's a really great question, and I, I've thought about it. So obviously, we see Ganondorf's skeleton uh, with the the calamity hand spike like going through I, it, it, and it, clear, it has it was, Gerudo markings yeah, on it. It was clearly, clearly Ganondorf. Yeah, it was clearly Ganondorf, like in his gerudo-ness so like if are we gonna get like zombie ganondorf that's gerudo like i don't know i think there's a lot of very interesting things that could come out of that but it seems to be that for whatever reason ganondorf's physical form or ganon's physical form seems to stick to the gerudo tribe for some reason like it's kind of odd i don't i don't know and having not played all of the games, uh, I've obviously seen Ganondorf's uh, likeness from Wind Waker. He looks very much like the Ganondorf in uh, Ocarina of Time. Obviously, the Ganondorf in Twilight Princess is the Ganondorf from Ocarina of Time. So, like, as far as I know, in my personal experience with these games, the physical likeness of Ganondorf has always been Gerudo. Yeah which is really interesting. Yeah. And I guess that would be the same I guess that would be the same body of Ganondorf from Twilight Princess. It'd be that version cuz you never really see what happens so, to him after you beat him in that last sword fight, but like I would I guess so. I think that's I think that is a very interesting point of possible contention, right? Like you would assume that he was destroyed. Like do they seal him back in the Twilight Realm? Like what, what I don't remember and it's been 
it's been a long time since I played Twilight Princess. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is just me trying to remember off the top of my head, not succeeding very well. Um, I don't really remember what happens to Ganondorf at the end of that. Does he? I think he just kind of disappears, doesn't he? He like kind of dissolves. But he was destroyed. Ganon was destroyed. <laughs> it was destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I think it's uh, uh, the ending of Twilight Princess is very open ended. Like, I think, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't think it actually is 100% clear what happens to Ganondorf at the end of that game. But that's all that's all Twilight Princess talking spoilers. So, you know, we'll we'll move on past that to something else, but and, and we will get there eventually. So, keep tuning in until we get yep, there. It's it's <laughs> going to happen one day. All right, let's go ahead and get into part 3, which this week is going to be the dungeon map because we do have a divine beast to talk about. Uh the divine beast of course in question is going to be Va Naboris, a giant camel. Um, and, and definitely I think, do they have camels anywhere else? Uh, I mean, if they do, then it's not jumping out at me. Right. So <laughs> kind of to cut you off mid sentence, cause this jumped in my head as I was writing the plot recap and said in the camel's humps, I started thinking about, well, where they did they, where did they get the inspiration to make it a camel? I mean, there are no elephants in I, I, Breath I, of the Wild I, either. Also true. Yeah, like well, where does the inspiration for these things come from? Because like obviously like lizard and uh, bird, pretty pretty obvious. But like elephant and camel, huh? Yeah, kind of odd. It's it, it yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I'm willing to accept uh, the conceit that camels do exist in this world, and we just didn't see them. Yeah, that's a, a, a certain suspension of disbelief. Cool, right? that sounds good. Um, so yeah, I think definitely you and I had some preconceived notions about this divine beast going into it. Um, obviously, just because of the boss, right? Like everyone kind of remembers Thunderblight right. Ganon. But I, I think we also had kind of an idea in our minds that this was the divine beast that that was really the challenging one where a lot of the others just kind of tend to be a, a bit of a breeze, you know? Um, absolutely. And did you find that to be the case? Oh, I, I absolutely found that to be the case. I think Von Aburis, Von Aburis is what every divine beast should have been at base level. In my opinion, I think that it really drives home some of the very unique things about breath of the wilds. Um, Sandbox, um, as we've talked a lot about electricity specifically being so unique and so well done within this game. Um, Von de Boris brings a lot of that to a head um, on top of being a very interesting puzzle box type dungeon. Um, the moving parts, the the cylindrical movements of the midsection, the moving of the head and the neck and the the tail to and all of that in concert to open up certain sections one after another. Uh, the top section having to be done in sequence instead of in any order you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this really brings home what I what I, like I said what I think every divine beast should have been at base yeah so um, and and so of course as with every other divine beast Vonaboris does have a mechanic by which you can alter the arrangement of the divine beast once you get the map downloaded and in Vonaboris that comes in the form of like three rotating cylinders that make up the inside of the divine beast and you can rotate each cylinder independently um, one quarter at a time you can you can rotate them um, uh, 
what, 90 degrees at a time, right? Yes. yes. Um, and so I think what that leads to is what you're saying, where that actually creates a lot more complexity in this divine beast than the similar mechanics do in the other ones, really. I think um, mm-hmm. a distant second place is the trunk on Varuta that you use to, like, direct the flow of water. Um, into into different places in that divine beast, but like uh, you know, here it really does take some like thinking about. Like you really got to stare at that map a little bit and just be like, okay, so if I rotate this one this way, um, then does that like put this walkway in line with this walkway? And it it actually is very easy to get disoriented in this one. Oh, very easy, and and I find myself pretty frequently rotating the wrong section. Um, than the one that I wanted and it's like kind of annoying but also one of those things that I'm like oh that's really cool that like like it, yeah I don't know I I really love this divine beast so I'm gonna let you continue your thoughts there yeah I think that is fun how this one is is kind of split up into the the lower floor and the upper floor um, and then you've got those last two terminals on the upper floor where you have to start activating elevators and you get some of those electric nodes that you can use to control them um, and so it kind of leads to um, a bit more of a classic, like I, I still wouldn't say this feels like a classic Zelda dungeon because it doesn't, but I do think that that kind of physical divide of the layout of it and the fact that you have to kind of traverse it, um, you know, in that way makes it feel just a little bit more like it comes from a Zelda dungeon design lineage uh, than some of the other Divine Beasts do. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think one of the big things that we've seen from the other um, dungeons is that you can really do them in kind of any order. There's really not a set way to do them. There is a... You kind of just do. And um, you don't get that at all here. Um, you You have to do certain things very much in uh in order and i I like that in a lot of ways um it like like you said it feels very classic um when it comes right down to it though just the complexity of maneuvering everything in such a way that it opens things up at the right time closes other things off at at the right time and having to go kind of one at a time like there is no way for you to make a certain number of moves like a tetris block and then be able to activate even three of the powerpoints as necessary. Right. Like you really have to do one at a time and you have to be very intentional about how you do that. And in some ways in what order you do that. So I, I really, really, really like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I will say that one of my main uh, points of criticism around the divine beast generally holds true in this one, which is that like, you know, combat is just not a concern at all. There, there is none there. Like the only the only thing that I fought in this entire dungeon was a single floating Lizalfo's head um, because I didn't kill the Malasai fast enough. And like, that's just frustrating to me. Yep. Like combat is such a big part of this game. Like it, this has the most intricate and fun combat system of any Zelda game by far. And it's just not present in the, in the four major sections of this game. It is just not present yeah. until you get to the blight fights and the blight fights are jokes. Like even this one, if you have Daruk's protection is just not hard. Yeah. And like, that's just frustrating. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I, you look, I, I obviously, I completely agree with you. Um, I do think that uh, just because I was having to think so much more about the puzzle solving in this one, um, I missed uh, I missed that extra layer of combat a little bit less than I have in the past. But that's not me saying for sure. That's not me saying that I want to give it a pass because I still think that the addition of that would have made this an even more enjoyable experience. You know? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think that there would have been some real opportunity, just as we've said in every other divine beast. You know, most other divine beasts, we've given it the uh, wow. This could have been so much harder from a puzzle perspective, and also, yeah, let's throw some combat in there. I think for this divine beast, all it's really missing is in like give it some extra rooms, give it some extra breadth, and like put some put some mini bosses in there. Like make me fight some I don't know like not necessarily a Lionel but like a Hinox or let me fight like a room full of some trash mobs like I don't know like something 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 to bring it up right mm-hmm. like just it, it it feels like it just needs that cherry on top um, whereas most of the other divine beasts felt like they needed most of the meal this just feels like it needs a good side of mashed potatoes to complement the steak. You know, yep. like that's kind of where I'm at. Yep. I'm, I'm definitely with you there. Um, I will say, I don't know if this was a problem for you, but every time I do this divine beast, I get tripped up thinking that one of the power nodes is like in that huge boar that runs along the length of the neck, you know? Yes. Every time, every single time. And it's never in there. There's like a chest that's back there. It's with, like an opal. Yeah. It's, it's like a rupee or something, like a ruby or something. I'm just like, oh, well, whoops. yeah, and it's just like such a it's like such a weird subversion of expectations because it looks like a place where something really important would be, you know? Yeah. And it's really not that important. No. Like, it's I'm pretty sure it's like a ruby or a sapphire or something that you have like 50 of at this point in the game. Yeah, that sounds right. So anyway, yeah, that 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 crazy little area um, just, you know, like definitely kind of leads me astray every single time i definitely spend a lot longer trying to get in there every time every time i play this than i really should because it's it's, all it's really doing is setting me back from a time perspective (laughs) at the end of the day but but it looks so cool i just want to go in there and explore it every time it does it really does look really neat uh I, i will actually say too that um in some ways i think that that is one element of the uh, the interior design of Vonnaboris that really lends this divine beast to feeling like a functional piece of technology in a way that the yes. others don't as much. Like, um, I, I think uh, Va Rudania also kind of feels this way, but Va Ruta and Va Meadow, even though yes, they're they're massive like automaton machines, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. the puzzles that are in the middle of them feel like puzzles for the sake of having puzzles, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and this one just kind of feels like, oh yeah, I mean, you know, clearly this is the movement mechanism for this huge creature and we move these things around and we, we progress doing, doing that in that way. And it all makes sense because this feels like what the, what the interior of a thing this size that does that serves this purpose would look like, you know? 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think that what's what really brings it home for me is all of the various parts of Vondivorus that you can move via electricity. Like, this is one of the few Divine Beasts where I, like, actually kind of understand its mechanism of movement and, like, how am I influencing these things to move with my Sheikah Slate, with my, you know, with the environment as it is. It's like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm moving electricity throughout this mechanical monster and it makes a lot of sense and i think um that this divine beast just really does a great job overall um of not only uh being really fun but also of being um functional and not the right i mean it's it's, um, yeah i mean it it has a functional aesthetic i think is maybe what you're searching for yeah uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. It, it it just it makes sense. It makes sense how it works and why it works, and um, that's really that's really something I think the other ones are lacking a little bit. Like I can kind of see uh, Varuta a little bit just because you know you have water pressure and things like that, and um, I don't know. Like it's it's yeah yeah. I digress. Yep, nope, I got you. I got you. Um, okay, cool. So let's go ahead and talk about the boss of this divine beast, which is of course the dreaded. Um, Thunderblight Ganon, uh, and I say I say dreaded not because I do not look forward to fighting this boss, um, when but because he's hard as dick. Yeah, he's he's hard as balls, and um, I think challenging in a very fun and interesting way. And I I think that fighting uh, Thunderblight Ganon again for like the fourth or fifth time. Um, this is this is my fourth. Uh, no, third playthrough of Breath of the Wild, but, y- you know, you fight Thunderblight Ganon for Champions Ballad stuff, too. So I've, I've fought him several times. Um, but I I just think this fight really holds up. Um, I think it's a ton of fun. I think it is way more challenging than the other Divine Beast uh, boss fights, like, to to an incredible degree. Oh, yeah. No, there, there's absolutely zero doubt about that. I think um, they do... Man, he's, he's so fast. And... Like, you can't blink when this dude starts his runs. Um, and, like, it, it's one of the divine beasts that are the blights that I, like, actually look at fighting this guy. And I'm like, okay, I understand how the champion died to this dude 100 years ago. I'm there. I get it. Because, um, yeah, he's he is intense. Yeah, I completely agree. Um and, and I mean, what you're talking about, the speed is is the main thing, really. Um, you're so used to, you know, trying to get your perfect dodges and parries and everything just based on the movement animations of a lot of these enemies in this game. Um, and Thunderblight Ganon moves so quickly that it's really tough to get your head around, like, what the appropriate time is to even do any of that, you know? Yeah, you almost have to memorize the amount of time it takes for him to go from startup to attack. And if you have done that, then you're in a good spot. But if you haven't and you're trying to just go off of like eye movement, um, man, I, I can't personally imagine being successful doing it that doing it that way. Yeah. Um, I also think that Thunderblight Ganon has got one of the most fun combat mechanics um, of any of the bosses in this game. So uh, like all the other Divine Beast bosses, uh, it comes in two stages, right? Like you, you get about to the 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 back half of damage and then you get an animation where it clicks over to like a, another 
um, phase of the fight where he has new behaviors and new animations and everything. Um, and yep. in that back half, he's got this really cool thing he does where he drops these metal uh, pillars all throughout the combat arena and they attract lightning. And if you are too close to any of them, then you get shocked. Um, but I always think it's so fun using Magnesis to pick those up and then you just kind of float it. And throw them. Oh, yeah. Is that not what you're supposed to do? Because that's that's what I do every oh, time. Oh, yeah, it is. I think it, I think that it's intended oh, okay. for you to do that. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I was like, because, yeah, that's... I remember the first time I was playing Thunderblight Ganon, and he was doing this, and I just could not figure out what to do because I would try to shoot him in the face with an arrow, and he'd block it every time with his shield. And I would try to, like, hit it with a bomb, and it wouldn't work. Like, I just couldn't figure out how to progress the damage phase at this point in the fight until I finally was just like screw it these things are metal I'm gonna try to magnesis it and I started doing it but every time the or at least the first couple of times I tried it he would shock it while I was holding it which would then of course shock me yeah. in turn and um, I just remember being so like not frust- frustrated definitely but not in the like rage quit kind of way in the like man I just like want to figure this out and this is challenging kind of way yeah like fun frustrated i don't know if there's if that's a word uh yeah i i I think so you were challenged you were um yeah intellectually (laughs) challenged indeed Uh, that's that's appropriate uh no i completely agree with you um i think one of the things that makes thunder black ganon so hazardous to fight is that especially in that back phase um his actual body is charged with electricity so if you don't have him in like one of his stun states and you get too close then you are getting like zapped every time you land blows and then you know Mm -hmm. like your shields and bows and everything you're dropping and yeah, so yep. that's actually one of the instances in which it's really useful to be having the Master Sword equipped for that whole fight. Because you can never drop yeah, it. You can't drop the Master Sword. I was using it. Yep, as, as was I. Um, I haven't actually used the Master Sword too much up until this point. Um, but, you know, I feel like it gets all glowy and awesome inside Divine Beasts. And I was like, well... I love the glowy and awesome Master Sword. Yeah. It makes me happy. I was like, if not now, then when? So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so I had a great time doing that. Um I mean, yeah, really just, I, I think the standout boss experience of, of all the divine beasts, bar none. And I was about to actually, bar I was about to actually say that I think it's probably the best boss fight in Breath of the Wild. And then I started thinking ahead to some Champions Ballad stuff. Champions Ballad. Yeah. So, so we'll have to revisit that. I have a, I have a couple notes that are less than glowing about it, which is a little off kilter for us. Um, in... In non-master mode, so in normal mode, if you have Daruk's protection fully charged, um, it makes this fight kind of a breeze. And I find myself constantly wishing that I could toggle master mode on and off. And specifically in these boss fights, just because because the blights are just so laughably easy... I wish that I had a better way other than self-imposed rules like turning off Daruk's protection or using low-grade armor or, you know, whatever to make these fights more challenging. And I think that's a big failure on the part of just the design of these bosses just being so laughably easy. And then I was sitting here thinking about it for a while. I was like, why, why is it that all four of these blights are just so so dumb really um and i remembered that if you go fight calamity ganon before freeing 
the divine beasts. Any divine beast that you have not freed, its blight will fight alongside Ganon in that final boss fight. So it almost feels like the the game designers created these blights with that primarily in mind. And yeah. I feel like that che- I feel like that cheapens the experience of freeing the divine beasts a little bit because not only when you free the divine beasts does it take Ganon's health in half immediately, which makes him very easy. These are all easy on their own. And there's actually I think the next time I play this game, I'm going to really try to like do most of the shrines and not free any of the divine beasts and go fight Ganon and like just see how hard it uh, is because like I, that's kind of the, the thing that I'm craving from this game is that kind of challenge. I've always been curious to play this game that way and I've never done it just because I'm such a sucker for like the the canon of the story, I guess, you know? Yeah. That that's exactly why I don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's um one day I I don't know. I mean like it that's on the list of things that I want to try one day in addition to like run off the great plateau and go fight Ganon in, in Hyrule Castle, you know? Right. Like it, like at some point I'll probably do it just for funsies, but I do think fictionally it makes sense that these blights are just a little bit less threatening um, from like an intelligence perspective because they are, you, you know, they are lesser shades of Calamity Ganon and and like that's definitely how they are uh, portrayed um, and definitely how they c- come across in my mind. Yeah, for sure. I just, as with, and not to beat the dead horse that we have beaten three times in a row on Divine Beasts, I just wish there was more here. Yeah. I, I that's re- I just wish there was more. And as much as I love Vondaboris, and as much as I love uh, Thunderblight Ganon specifically, um, I am missing the Forest Temple. I am missing the Spirit Temple. I am missing... Um, you know, Volvagia. I am, I'm missing, you know, all of it, right? Like it's, it's just, there's, there's a lot there in the other games that we have played that, um, that I'm missing right now. And that just kind of is what it is. Yep. Nope. I, I completely agree. Um, and I 1000% understand where you're, where you're coming from. Um, I would say that I'm, I'm basically there too. Um, I think we're, we're really of a mind about this. Uh, and we knew that that was going to be the case going into this game. Absolutely. So, Yep, and it, and it has held true. Like, now that we've got all of the Divine Beasts behind us, I think we can confidently say that, yes, that is how it ended up panning out. Um, before we move on to shrine diving and talk about uh, any, you know, shrine picks that we got for this week, I do want to ask you real quick, now that we've done all four of them, how would you rank the Divine Beasts? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Va Naboris, Va Meadow, Va uh, Rudania, and then... Or sorry, Va uh, Ruta and then Va Rudania. Cool. That's actually my ranking as well. Yeah. Wow, look at that. We agree on something. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk shrines real quick. Did you have a fun one that you did this week that you want to talk about? I do, actually. Um, so right after I finished the Yika Clan hideout, I went straight north because uh, there's a little path that goes past... Um, the giant hole uh, and it leads you up into the foothills of the Gerudo Highlands and there's a cool shrine up there that you have to do a lot of melting action it's encased in a glacier 
and you have to melt this glacier all the way down, which is, you know, kind of whatever. Um, the path up to that shrine is really fun. There's a lot of high level enemies that are hard to kill that are, it's a fun fight, especially when you're in snow and you can't move as quickly. I enjoy the challenge. Uh, but so this shrine is called the Kutsakar Shrine. And it is uh, titled Melting Ice Hazard. And you have basically have to take this block of ice, uh, very much similar to what you have to do in the Gerudo Desert, where you take a block of ice over to a person. Uh, you take this block of ice through a labyrinth of uh, fiery traps. And I remember this shrine being very frustrating the first time that I did it because I wasn't utilizing all of my tools. But you really have to utilize um, almost all, except for Cryonis, I think, um, almost all of your um, tools to get it through um, utilizing a combination of magnesis plus uh, stasis to uh, block some of those fiery pillars and then shoot the ice block out uh, underneath a uh, floating um, steel cube uh, is fun just like the whole thing I, I think is well done and it, it really stretches your imagination for how to maneuver this block around the map so I really liked that one. yeah um, I do actually recall that being one of the more fun and inventive shrines to tackle and I have not done it yet but I am very much looking forward to getting to it at some point in the in the very near future um, so yeah definitely a good pick there mine is actually not even a shrine that like is too super fun to take care of on its own um, because it's just a it's a blessing shrine but I wanted to talk mm-hmm. about the one that you get at the end of doing the seven heroine statue quest. Um, and so that shrine is going to be the, uh, the Korsh Ohu shrine. And um, I think that those, that seven heroine statue area of the desert is just so stinking cool. Um, it's one of those areas of Gerudo desert that makes it feel so ancient and just like steeped in history, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, oh, for sure, there are a few different shrines in the game that you have to access by like um, bringing the right orbs to the right pedestals. Right? There's one in the uh, uh, in the Thundra Plateau as well um, that work kind of similarly. But in this one, you have a lot more orbs that you have to kind of pair up, and so you have to do like a lot of traversing and climbing and whatnot. And I don't know. I just think it's a really a really good time. Um, I've always enjoyed going over there. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I think I assign a lot of my own like fictional fun to it, um, and it just gets you thinking about like the seven heroines of the Gerudo and like what the story is there, um, which is great. I think that good world building should do that. Absolutely, no, I totally agree. I remember. I mean, I did that one last week and uh, had a very similar thought. Uh, obviously, I think there's just a lot going for this uh, area of the game in general as we have said many times that the Gerudo Desert is one of the more interesting uh, large areas of the map and very I really love exploring it Um, the Statue of the Eighth Heroine I talked about last week as well and um, I think it all just kind of goes together to tell or to tease a very interesting story of a very storied people that I wish we kind of got some more uh, we got some more background on I would love to see I would love to see a lot of that in action. Um, and I don't feel like we get to see as much of it as I'd like. Yeah. But yep. It is what it is. 
I couldn't agree more, Matt. All right, let's move on to part four, which is Blue Trails, where we talked about fascinating things that diverted our attention. I'm going to go ahead and kick this one off because I think the big one for me this week was um, wrapping up the Thunderhelm quest in Gerudo Town and doing all the different subquests that are required to get you to actually um, take possession of the Thunderhelm, which I think is a really fun thing um, that you can kind of do in here. It's a really cool piece of gear. Um, of course, after you beat Von Boris, what you can do is go back and talk to Riju and you can tell her that you are interested in uh, borrowing the Thunderhelm on your journey. And uh, Riju says that if you are able to bring like peace to Gerudo Town in totality or something like that, then she'll let you have it. Um, in order to make this happen, there are five different quests that you have to complete. There's the search for Barta, which you actually take care of um, just by doing the Yiga hideout. There is the medicinal Molduga quest where you have to get some Molduga guts and bring them to this woman um, to cure her sick husband. There's the mystery polluter where um, somebody is dumping garbage into um, this the, uh, the little girl Dahlia's um, orchard that she's trying to plant. There's the secret club secret. Um, in which you can gain access to the secret club in Gerudo Town that has got two different outfits you can buy. And then there's Tools of the Trade, um, which is, I think, the one where you have to give Flint to the jeweler in Gerudo Town. Yes. Yes. So all of those are fun enough to do on their own. Um, obviously, the secret club actually even gets you access to, you know, two cool outfits. You can get the Desert Vaux armor in there. And then also, I forget what the other one is called. It's like luchador looking armor. <laughs> Yeah, it's the the lucent gear, luminescent gear, something like that. So, um, you know, it's definitely not my go to piece <laughs> piece of armor, but definitely not mine either. But it's, it's it is very unique and cool looking for it's sure. A little, you buy it with uh, with the luminous stones. Yeah, um, it sort of looks like uh, Bane from Batman. He it kind of does. Yeah, like <laughs> like I said, not not my preferred gear, but. Um, Definitely interesting. And interesting is the word, no doubt about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think it's really fun um, that they populated Gerudo Town with enough stuff to support a quest like this. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's a it's a really cool quest. I actually have never completed that all the way, mostly out of a um, oh, what's the word? A deep ingrained belief that the heirloom of the Gerudo people should remain with the Gerudo chieftain and not (laughs) wanting to take that from it from them. So, uh, you know, I have completed all of those side quests, but I never go and actually like take the thunder helm from Riju. Well, you know, fictionally, I do like to assume that we, we bring it back to them at some point after our, our wanderings are done. Yeah. I mean, fictionally that probably does happen, but, uh, I don't think that far ahead most of the time. Um, maybe I'll do it this time. I like I said, I have normally complete all of those quests anyway, so maybe I'll just go uh, take it and take it for a spin. Yeah, yeah, I recommend it. I think it's fun. Uh, Matt, did you have a bloopy trail that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so I actually did two really fun things this week. Um, I number one was I completed my first uh, tier of Trial of the Sword, so um, I have a. 40 attack master sword and I felt very accomplished and energized by finally being able to conquer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it took me th- at least three times. I think on my fourth try, I finally got it on normal mode. So, you know, 
take that for what it's worth. I'm bad at this game. In other words, <laughs> yeah, I still, I still have not completed any trial of the sword, by the way, I'm still struggling with that. So it's, it's, it's rough. It's rough. Um, so I did that, which, uh, I, there's, there's no elation quite like the elation of realizing that you have entered the final room to uh, go just claim the master sword and get all your shit back. And I was like, oh, yes, finally. Um, so that was really good. Um, I find myself in Trial of the Sword absolutely hoarding the best weapons. And then I come to the end of it and I still have all of them. And I'm like, there's no reason for me to have used six Bokoblin spears to kill one white Lazalfos. Because now I have this Dragonbone Boko Club that I didn't even use a single time. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> it's definitely a uh, an RPGist's mentality of, I'm going to save all of these health potions because I might need them later. And then you end the game with, like, 500 health potions and 60-plus attack potions and, like, all the things. And you're like, well, yeah, that's maybe I could have been used those a little less sparingly. Yeah, in Master Mode, that's definitely not the experience. I mean, you really do just run through all your stuff in Master Mode just because of uh, yeah. how much tankier everyone is and the health regen and, and all that. So definitely a different experience. I, I have not gone back to trial of the sword yet in a few weeks, just because I, you know, like I, I want to actually play the parts of the game that we're, we're supposed to be playing and I don't want to be wasting a ton of time just trying to grind out trial of the sword. Um, but I will be giving it another, you know, another honest shot at some point before too terribly long. So, well, that's good. Um, and the only other thing that I did this week that I, I really I wanted to make mention of was my uh, I, I did two Molduga fights and man those are just fun. Uh, not only does it combine the best uh, movement throughout the game in the sand ceiling, which uh, I love it, it's so much fun. Uh, it also is it's like a really fun fight, like uh, dropping bombs behind you to get the Molduga to pop up and blow them up, and then uh, doing some big boy damage afterwards. Yeah, it's, it's just a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy those fights a lot. Yeah, I think that they're I think they're, they're a great use of the desert landscape. Um, you know, uh, they are definitely not pushovers. Um, I think they're they're a really fun time to try and take down. They so. do hella damage, man. They do hella damage. They do, and they usually drop pretty good stuff as well. I've found. Yeah, and they they drop chests out of their bodies, which I thought was really interesting um, and enjoyable because I got some I got some good like plus like plus eleven attack royal bow and like uh yeah I got, I got some good sh- ish got some good loot <laughs> nice uh, nice nice uh, well let's go ahead and move on to part five which is Z targeting where we talk about fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross Matt who's your Z targeting pick for this week. Um, oh man, I've already did Riju once, so I'm not going to do her again. Um, do, 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 do I want to do, do I want to do Zelda? Hmm. Let me see. You know what? I am. I'm going to take Zelda this week um, and maybe regret it later when we have our memories quest. But uh, I'm going to take Zelda this week and I'm going to do that because um, I really appreciate the characterization that Zelda has, not only in uh, the scene that we get with her and Urbosa, but also just what we know of her in general so far. Um, 
the intense struggle that she has for her powers, the intense struggle that she has internally with herself about feeling uh, less than worthy and about trying so hard for so long for absolutely zero war- reward and um, just everything that goes into that, her strength of character to continue persevering because she knows that's what her people need. Um, and then having the, just the deep personal um wounds that she has from a a dead mother from a young age and a father who has pushed her more than he has supported her and you know say what you will but he is the king of hyrule and it's his daughter's you know role and responsibility to unlock this power and, and she hasn't been and he's trying his best to be a father but also be a king and like i can't imagine what that's like so you know zelda is navigating all of these incredible deep issues um and you see her in a very vulnerable position with someone who has uh expected nothing of her her entire life and who has only ever supported her and given her what she probably needs most in the world, which is love and support unconditionally and um, told her frequently how proud she is of her. Um, You see her in this tender moment with Urbosa. And I I really appreciate the characterization of Zelda uh, in this game. Yeah, I I think that's a really good pick. And I think that this is a pretty, a pretty good week to, um, to kind of pick Zelda. Um, I do think you're right. We've got some, some more great Zelda stuff coming up, but yeah, uh, definitely some good beats to be had here. And yeah, I think a very solid choice. Um, I'm going with, uh, somebody who's not even slightly a main character for my Z targeting pick this week. Um, that is the person who is the subject of the mystery polluter, uh, quest in Gerudo town. And the, the way that this works is that, um, this, this little girl, this little Gerudo Vi wants to start an orchard in Gerudo town. Um, but there's no water from the aqueduct coming down to where she's been tilling the ground because it's getting blocked up by garbage. And so you go try and check out where all the garbage is coming from and you follow this, like, never ending stream of melon rinds that are just floating down the aqueduct. And what it turns out is happening is there's this random Gerudo woman who's just chilling up on top of the aqueduct and she's just munching on melons like all day, every day, just eating melon after melon <laughs> after eating melon, hydromelon. Yeah, and, and throwing the rinds in the aqueduct. And that's what's causing the blockage. Um, and this person's name is Caliban. And, uh, we, you know, when you go talk to her and you're like, hey, so this little girl's trying to do this and you're kind of, yeah, you know, you're kind of messing it up for everybody. She's just like, well, I'm not sure why I should change my lifestyle. Uh, but tell you what, I'll <laughs> she's, she's like, altruism. Sounds familiar. Yeah. She's like, altruism is for suckers, but I'll do this if you can give me 10, uh, wild berries. And so, um, yeah, you got to go grab 10 wild berries. I think you can find them up in the Gerudo, um, highlands. Um, they tend to grow in colder areas and, uh, they can actually be found over by, um, Rito Village as well. But uh, yeah, so I just thought she was a really fun melon munching character. She is a melon fiend, Lyndon. She loves that melon. I mean, she's got just an entire stack. She's literally like sleeping on melons. And it is it is a self uh, replenishing stack of melons as well, which I think she needs to share that technology or that miracle with everybody else because she has an endless supply of food and I feel like it's selfish to keep that to yourself. Yep, I mean... Truly, she's not thinking uh, of her people or 
Yeah, any anybody else besides herself. But you know, as she as she said in her own words, uh, altruism is for suckers. So clearly, <laughs> clearly a code that she lives by. Oh man, not one that anybody can respect. But there it yep, is. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into part six, which is our final thoughts, where we let Matt off the chain to wrap up this section of the game as succinctly as he can think to do. See, letting me off the chain is never a good idea, but here we go. So this section of the game, when taken by itself from just the Yiga hideout to Vondaboris, is still one of the strongest sections of this game. We get easily the best Divine Beast, easily the best Blight Ganon fight. Uh, We get some really amazing scenery and some really amazing set pieces that we get to interact with throughout this section. Uh, On top of that, we get excellent character character development from Riju. Uh, We get uh, finally a good look at Urbosa and Zelda, uh, two characters that have been very influential across Link's journey. Um, There is just a lot going on in this section that is really, really strong. Um, The Divine Beast Vondaboris really showcases the complexity that puzzle building could have been for the rest of the Divine Beasts, Um, but obviously we, we didn't see that throughout the other three. Um, I think that all in all, this section really takes um, some good things about what we saw in the first section and dials them up another notch um, to give us a really phenomenal penultimate uh, section of the main game. Well done, as always, Matt. You got a real knack for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I try my best. Don't know if I ever told you, but there you go. There's there's some praise. Ah, I I do thrive on praise. Um, so (laughs) (laughs) I know this about you and I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to offer it in little crumbles every now and again, (laughs) just enough to keep you coming back. I was about to say, hence the ember of familial love that has uh, grown. Mm -hmm. So that is going to bring us to the end of our explorations of the Gerudo desert. It has been a great two weeks. Um, I had a really awesome time with it. And now we're going to really get into the, to the back portion of this game um, where we've got a little bit less structure. We've got a little bit of DLC to tackle great fun things ahead. Um, I mean, I I'm, I'm stoked for it, Matt. Are you? I absolutely am. I think, you know, the, the next couple sections are really just like tying up loose ends. Uh, but as far as loose ends go in a game, there are not many games that have better loose ends than this one. Uh, I I mean, you, you could honestly call Breath of the Wild loose ends the game and it would be fairly accurate. So, yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Matt, I know you're out on a business trip and uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a young man anymore. I could stand to, I could stand to get to bed. Are you ready to call it, call this one done and get out of here? I am ready. Let's do it. Excellent. And just another reminder before we get out of here, look for the poll where you can vote on the next game that we play uh, sometime later this week. It's going to be a great time and I'm excited to get back into the top down um, realm of Zelda design convention. 
If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. Got no rupees? It is not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Breath of the Wild Chapter 13, which we have dubbed the unlocking memories quest going to be a big big plot week uh, and i can't wait to get into that uh breath of the wild is of course playable on the wii u and on the nintendo switch Uh, we would love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels in the meantime though may your hearts be full may your arrows never miss we will catch y'all next week Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. 